May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. And be seated. What happens uh, in a church that has been worshiping with uh, choir accompanied by organ when a minister comes in and brings in a guitar and drums? Trouble. (laughs) What happens in a non-liturgical church, a free church, where they're used to spontaneity and extemporaneous prayer when the pastor begins to bring in liturgy? The same thing can happen, conflict. Some people call it the worship wars. And oftentimes, and I'm not trying to stir anything up. (laughs) Not trying to stir anything up today. I think we're at a pretty good point right now in terms of our unity on these issues, and I give thanks to God for that. But in our gospel reading, the reason I bring that up, in our gospel reading, um, Jesus cleanses the temple. And in this reading, we find some principles about worship that can help us think through the issues and um, go maybe a little deeper than just what is our personal preference. But what is worship, New Testament worship about? Of course, we're not going to be able to handle all the issues, but I do want to just draw out some points from our text today. And I uh, have three headings to help us work through this. Jesus' critique, Jesus' cleansing, and then Jesus' great claim in this passage of Scripture. So first of all, Jesus' critique about what was happening in the temple in his day. Look at verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Now, he already drove out the sheep and the oxen with a whip, but you can't drive out pigeons with a whip. So he tells the people with the pigeons, get them out of here. Take them away. And then here's the critique. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What was happening was they had replaced worshiping God with business. Business may be for God, related to the worship of God, but they had replaced worshiping God with something else. It was distracting people from worship. Now, what was happening here, the selling of sacrificial animals and the exchange of money, in and of itself, those things were not terrible. Those things were not bad. In fact, of course, God is the one who instituted the sacrificial system. And he demanded that worshipers come into his presence with a sacrifice. So it was appropriate to have sacrificial animals there. It was convenient for people who were traveling long distances to Jerusalem during the Passover to just go ahead and purchase their animal there near the temple. And even the money changing in and of itself was not problematic, although we know from other scriptures that the people who were exchanging money were motivated by greed and they were charging an exorbitant rate of interest, and Jesus did criticize them about that in another temple cleansing. How dare you make my father's house into a den of thieves? 
But they, the reason they changed money is because the Jewish leaders said that the common currency, the Roman currency, was unclean. It was unfit for the temple offering. Every male Jew had to bring an offering to the temple. The, the common uh, coin, the Roman coin, had an image on it, the image of the king, the image of Caesar. And that was a violation, they said, of the second commandment. We read it today. Thou shalt not make any graven images. We don't want graven images in our temple. So they wanted to exchange the money. So in and of itself, that wasn't really problematic. It wasn't what was taking place so much as where it was taking place. It was taking place in the temple precincts. And this particular area that Jesus is talking about was the temple or was the court of the Gentiles. The temple had a series of courts. And on the, 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 the outside court was the court of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the God-fearing non-Jews who came to pray and to worship and commune with God. But that was impossible because of what was happening in that area. It would be like, I think of maybe if you've been to the Middle East, I've not been to the Middle East, but some of you have, maybe you've been to the Middle East and been uh, to the bazaars in the Middle East and all the hagging, haggling and selling that goes on, maybe something like a state fair here or an outside market. How can you worship God in that sort of environment? So Jesus' critique is that what was happening there was distracting people from the true purpose of the temple, which is to commune with God. Business had replaced worship. Is that happening in churches today? Can we see that happening? Are there things that detract us from the very purpose of worship? Are there attitudes that we might bring into the house of God that distract us from really communing with God? There's a story of a family that was driving home from church. The father complained that the sermon was too long. The mother complained that the soprano in the choir was a little flat. The little, little girl, Susie, complained that she didn't like the snack that she got from children's church. And little Johnny was hearing all this, and he piped up, and he said, Well, Mom and Dad, you've got to admit, it's not a bad show for a buck. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> If we approach worship in that way, like it's here to entertain me, like it's a consumer product, and I'm a consumer, and our culture forms us to be consumers, but if we don't drop that when we come into the house of God together, then we're looking at the wrong end of the telescope when it comes to worship. We got it all wrong. We've made ourselves the focus and not God. And even me as a minister, if I come up here and I think too much about how I'm performing, I lose focus. When we come together, and of course worship is bigger than just like an hour on a Sunday morning or an hour and a half. Worship is our whole life as believers. But when we come together as worshipers, there's something powerful about that. God commands us to do that. And the focus really does need to be on God. What he has done for us, receiving from him, hearing his word, receiving the sacraments, being nurtured in our faith, and encouraging one another. The focus can't be really on us or we will get distracted from the very point of worship. 
And so that's Jesus' criticism of what's going on here. Jesus had a great desire. He was zealous for the house of his father, and he wanted to worship God, and he wanted other people to join the course of worship. And in John chapter 6, he told the woman at the well, the father desires worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Oftentimes, that's what I pray when we gather together, the people who are serving in worship, we gather together and I pray, God, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to engage our spirit and our minds as we gather together here. Let's not get distracted from the point of worship. The next thing we see is Jesus' cleansing. Jesus' cleansing. And making a whip of cords, in verse 15, he drove them out, all of them out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What, what dramatic action Jesus is taking here to wake people up spiritually to what's going on. Imagine that. He is asserting great authority over the temple at this moment. And what he's doing is, he's not, I heard somebody describe this as a temple tantrum. This is not a temple tantrum. This is not an outburst. He is righteously angry, but he's not flying off the handle here. This is a prophetic action to make a point. You know, the prophets of old in the Old Testament oftentimes did things. They, they did things, dramatic action to make a point. To wake people up, because sometimes people need a visual. And you remember Ezekiel, for example, I think it's Ezekiel chapter 4, where God told um, Ezekiel to, to lay down on the ground for like 14 months and put a brick in front of him. And the brick was a symbol of the city wall and to build siege works against it. And for 14 months, something like 390 days, he was to lay there. I don't think he did it continuously. But he was, as the ESV Bible says about that story, it was a form of street theater almost to get people's attention. They couldn't ignore a man that was laying there day after day after day saying, this is a sign of what's to come if we don't turn to God. The siege is going to come against this city. And so God used the prophets in that way to do dramatic things, to take symbolic action to make a point. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's acting like a prophet in the temple. There were predictions in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came uh, during the day of the Lord, at the end of time, that the Lord himself would purify the worship of the people and the temple. So, for example, Malachi 3.1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord himself is going to come to the temple at the day of the Lord and he's going to purify the worship of his people. And Zechariah 14.21 says that on that day, the day of the Lord, there shall no longer be a traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So these things are in the background here of what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not just, again, um, acting out of an outburst of anger. He is making a demonstration. I have authority. This is a claim to be God's king, a claim to be the Messiah. And, and that's why the temple leaders come to him. The Jews, it says, came to him, but the reference there is to the Jewish leaders, not all the Jews, but the Jewish leaders. 
John uses that term, the Jews, oftentimes to refer to the Jewish leaders. They come to Jesus and they say, what gives you the right to do what you just did? By what sign can you show us that you have the authority to do what you just did in the temple? They recognized this was an act of authority, and they demanded a miracle. And these are the same people throughout the Gospels who often said, show us a sign, give us a miracle. And if you give us a miracle, then we'll believe in you, then we'll accept your authority. But then when Jesus did something miraculous, oftentimes what happened? They explained it away. He's healing by the presence of a demon. See, their heart was not willing to believe and to be open to Jesus Christ. But Jesus' great acts of authority demand a response. Do you believe in Jesus as the Messiah or not? Do you receive him as the one who has all authority in heaven and earth or not? And it was after the disciples remembered this, after the resurrection, Jesus' death and resurrection, that they understood that's the sign that he has the authority to do some of the things that he did. The resurrection is the sign that Jesus is the Messiah. We don't demand miracles from Jesus constantly and say, Lord, if you don't do this, I won't believe in you. To believe in Jesus, you just look to the cross and the empty tomb. And that's the sign that God has given us, enough to believe that Jesus is the authority. But when it comes to worship, This means that Jesus has authority in this temple, in this house, in this place of worship, in our lives. The the final word when it comes to worship goes to Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. There are some churches where relevance is a deciding factor in their worship. Relevance. I even know of a church in Florida called Relevant Church. I don't think that's an Anglican church. (laughs) Relevant church. The problem with making relevance the ultimate criteria is that sometimes we can then sweep away the difficult teachings of Jesus under the rug. If relevance is... Now, we should seek to share the gospel in a way that's understandable to the culture. Absolutely, that's an Anglican principle. But relevance cannot trump Jesus' authority. And there are churches who, in the name of relevance... Don't talk about sin and repentance and hell, and they don't talk about the demand that Jesus has in terms of sexual purity and monogamy and those sorts of things. Because in the name of relevance, they've swept it away. Other churches, for them, the, 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 the deciding factor, the default is tradition, the way we've always done it. But sometimes in the name of tradition, we can go against the word of Jesus Christ. To give a historical example, in the Middle Ages, there was a time period, and you know this, where the lay people were not able to take the chalice at Holy Communion. And they had reasons for that. They could give you reasons, theological reasons, biblical reasons even to a certain degree, but really they were going against the word and example of Jesus Christ. And they needed to be reformed by the example and teaching of Jesus Christ. And thank God that's what happened. We need to constantly be reformed in our worship through Jesus Christ. So the question is, when we think about worship, and particularly where there might be some conflict is, not just simply, is this relevant or is this tradition? But what does Christ say? What is Christ's value here? What is Christ's teaching here? What is the spirit of Christ on this issue? 
And if you want to dialogue with me or other leaders in the church about worship, I hope you have thought first through, and I want to hear people on worship, but please think through the teaching, the example, and the values of Jesus Christ as well. Because I'm not the head, he's the head of the church. He's in control. He ought to be in control when it comes to worship. And so we see Jesus' criticism, we see Jesus' cleansing, and then finally, this great claim that Jesus makes. This is astounding. This was the, the claim that he made that people twisted during his trial and said that he said he was going to destroy the temple. He said that the temple was going to be destroyed, but not that he was going to destroy it. He told them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But you can imagine what this must have sounded like to these Jewish leaders when he said this. Verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The great claim that Jesus is making here, the astounding, staggering claim in this context that he's making is, I'm replacing the temple. The temple served a purpose. The temple was God-given to shape people. But now I've come to fulfill the temple. The temple was the place of sacrifice. The cross of Christ is now the place of sacrifice. The temple was a place of forgiveness. The cross of Jesus is the place of forgiveness. The temple was the place where people could encounter the holy presence of God, but only the high priest once a year could go into the holy of holies. But through the work of Jesus, all of us now have access to the presence of God. And through the resurrection of Jesus, we have the promise that we can be in his presence forever. So Jesus replaces the temple. The temple is pointing to Jesus all along, and now he's come. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when we come into worship, we're not coming in our own righteousness, but we're coming through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our worship has to be Christ-centered, Christ-focused, because he is the one who makes worship possible. He is the one who enables us to come into the very presence of a holy God. I think sometimes the problem with worship or the problem we might have in worship, there's a number of issues that we could talk about, but I know that sometimes people feel distant from God from the very beginning, and they come in with baggage. They come in with a, an awareness of their failings, their they're burdened down by guilt and shame and the sense of their own sin. It's kind of like, you've seen this commercial for COPD, the one with the elephant. It starts off with a lady laying on a table and there's a big elephant on her chest. And then throughout the commercial, the elephant is following her around. You know, she goes to a restaurant, the elephant's there. She's in the office, the elephant's there. She's at the gym, the elephant's there, just threatening to pounce on her and to crush her again. I think sometimes we come into worship with an elephant <laughs> behind us, with a weight of shame and sin and guilt about what has happened in our past or what we maybe just did the night before. I, was, I spoke sharply with my wife or my kids. Maybe the season of Lent, it's a good time to remember this because how are you doing with your Lenten promises? Some of us maybe are not doing exactly what we wanted to do. Maybe we're not growing in prayer like we, we committed to. We're, we're making some progress, but we feel kind of guilty. We're not reading the Bible as much as we said we were going to at the beginning of Lent. And we come in with a burden of guilt. 
And the good news is that Jesus Christ, through his cross and resurrection, has taken all that upon himself. We have access to the Father through Jesus. He replaces the temple. We go through him. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our Anglican liturgy is very good at making sure that we're Christ-centered. Because what we do is we acknowledge our sin in confession. We hear the words of forgiveness and absolution. We meet the Lord Jesus at the table. And we're sent out in the name of Jesus to love and serve the world in his name. And so the Anglican liturgy, built into it, is very Christ-centered. It's not the only way to do Christ-centered worship, but it's a good way. And it's a valuable way. And we need to engage with it intentionally, thoughtfully, with an openness as we go through it. Lord, what do you have to say to me today as I bring this sacrifice of praise to you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you you have paid it all. You have paid the debt. You have accepted the penalty. You have offered your life. And Heavenly Father, we know that that is an act of love on, uh, motivated by your heart to be reconciled to us. And so, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work. We honor you. And we thank you that we are privileged to come together and to worship you in spirit and in truth on this day. Amen.